I'm worried about the courts becoming Uber legislators. The question is who's going to make the choice as between what those meanings are. If we're talking about a policy question, there are several reasonable meanings. Why should the court be the one to make that determination? Why indeed? From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM, elsewhere in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso and Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Fairmont, West Virginia on WEFR, up in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing the Globe, and usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, you've got me. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. Brad is out sick today, so I'm joined by our guest host and true friend in a pinch, Nicole Sandler (laughs) of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com. We are winging it today, so bear with us, please. Hey, Hey, Nicole. Hey, Desi. First of all, how is Brad doing? He is doing just fine. He's uh, he's a bit under the weather. He doesn't have a voice, though, to use for Ugh. today. So that's why you're stuck with me. <laughs> Well, no, this will be a good thing. But yeah. so it's COVID. It's it's the rebound COVID. Yes. Which, and that does uh, happen to a certain segment of the population, regardless of whether or not you've taken Paxlovid or not. Some people get mm-hmm. it. And sadly, it looks like he's got it. Oh, oh yeah, oh, poor baby. That's the worst. It I, is. I'm I'm still I'm one of the few left standing who hasn't gotten it. I know. And I and hope I won't, it stays I won't that say way. yet. I will not say yet because I I do not plan on getting it. Yes, I concur with that idea. Please don't get it. Do your best. Everybody, do your best to to look out for other people because you never know who you might be coming into contact with who might then have somebody at home that they might infect. So always good to uh, make sure that you're covering all of those bases and taking care of yourself and uh, avoiding spreading COVID any further. Yes. Now, were both of you fully vaccinated? Did you get the latest booster? Yes. Yes, 
we did. Okay. But, you know, it's uh, it doesn't prevent you completely from no. possibly getting infected. But it does help to reduce the severity and the duration of any uh, complications you might get and re- reduce exactly. the uh, of any infection. It also prevents hospitalization in nearly all cases. So, you know, it's um, I highly recommend getting boosted, getting vaccinated yes. uh, when if you can, because it's really very yes. helpful. Yes, most definitely. And I've, I've gotten them all. So hey, good I'm, for you. I'm taking every precaution. Yes. All right. So let me ask you, Desi Doy, and you started, you know, Brad always opens with a, with a clip, an audio yes. clip. That sounded like Ketanji Brown Jackson on yes. the Supreme Court. What what was that clip? What Um, was that from? Well, on Wednesday morning, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, heard oral arguments in a case that is technically about a fisheries rule, but it's actually brought by a right-wing legal mill to be a vehicle to dismantle the authority of federal agencies to craft energy and climate regulations. So it's brought by the Pacific Legal Foundation that is funded in part by fossil fuel billionaire Charles Koch everybody's best friend. And the firm has already succeeded in getting the right-wing supermajority on the court to reduce the EPA's authority to enforce to enforce the Clean Water Act. So now this case is called Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo. It is a dispute over a NOAA fisheries rule about fees that the commercial fishing industry has to pay. The justices said when they were taking up this case that they're not questioning whether NOAA has the authority in this case to make that rule, but explicitly they were going to limit the review to the question of whether they should overturn what is known as the Chevron Doctrine or the Chevron Deference. Simply put, the Chevron Deference requires that uh, experts at federal agencies should be given deference when they're crafting rules and regulations that judges then are decided are asked to decide about. So it basically, you know, Congress delegated those um, that authority to agencies and said, hey, you guys figure out how to regulate this. And so it requires the lower court judge- judges who are not experts to defer to that federal agency expertise if there is an ambiguous uh-huh. part of a statute or a regulation. So the interesting part of this is that it comes from a unanimous 1984 Supreme Court decision, Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council. The justices then rejected the environmentalists' challenge to a Reagan-era EPA rule on air pollution standards. So Interestingly, the rule that was that was uh, kind of weakened uh, air pollution rules was championed by Reagan's then EPA chief, Ann Gorsuch, who is Neil Gorsuch's mother. Oh, my. Yes. And <laughs> since then, um, the the Chevron deference has been used by environmental groups to uphold more strict pollution standards. And Justice Gorsuch has pretty much focused decades of his career on trying to put an end to that. So like mm. um, Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent at The Nation, he noted that the effort is, quote, part of Gorsuch's family legacy to try to destroy this decision and the government's regulatory powers. So. So, like, for example, when the when Congress passed the Clean Air Act, they didn't uh, specify all the pollutants that could potentially be regulated, especially, you know, future not yet identified pollutants. And they basically, you know, like carbon emissions, you know, for climate Mm -hmm. change. That wasn't a thing at the time. So uh, they if they didn't specifically uh, specify things like numerical limits, well, they left it to the experts at the EPA. They delegated it to them. So. Right. um, 
Justice Kagan um, and Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson and Justice Sotomayor all basically uh, poked holes at the uh, the the plaintiff's case, saying, you know, there's all kinds of ways that this is going to open up um, an opportunity for decades of previous cases that had been ruled on based on the Chevron deference, and that those cases would then suddenly be open for being heard again and potentially overturned, which would, of course, create chaos right there. Um, It would also invite chaos by gutting agencies' ability to craft rules and enforce laws that are mandated by Congress, and that would violate separation of powers. And um, they also noted that Congress has decades to amend these laws, and they could have even curtailed the Chevron deference, but they haven't. Mm -hmm. And that, in fact, Mm. Congress has passed many laws that rely on the Chevron deference so that agencies can just go ahead and get on with the, making the, the regulations based on the technical details of which they are the experts. So, they, right. you know, and they note that, you know, judges are not experts. So overruling Chevron would give unelected judges free reign to make policy or insert their own policy preferences and political ideology, regardless of the scientific evidence in deciding really what are technical matters. And, and they could use that then to achieve partisan political or policy ends. So, so, so like what they're doing with oh health care, where the yeah. judge in Texas decided that methapristone should be off the market, and now we're waiting for the Supreme Court to hear that case. Yeah, and judges are not doctors. In fact, we're finding no. out that a lot of the judges don't actually know how women's reproductive systems work, <laughs> no. which is kind of scary. Um, and and this so this particular thing, this Chevron deference if the right-wing supermajority overturns it, it could apply to all sectors, not just, you know, environment and energy. It could uh, mm-hmm. apply to healthcare regulations, finance regulations. It could prevent agencies from confronting future threats, you know, because Congress does not move that fast, and they also don't have the technical expertise. Um, you know, uh, basically, uh, Justin Kagan, uh, Justice Kagan, she, Elena Kagan, mm-hmm. she um, raised yes. the concept of future threats in regards to a question. uh, She basically posed a hypothetical question regarding artificial intelligence, which is a very (laughs) fast moving sector of the economy. You know, how do you regulate that to both, you know, take advantage of the opportunities, but also protect people and uh, and other legal concepts uh, like rights and, uh, you know, copyrights and things like that. Oh, tell me about it. You know, I got to interrupt you for a second and tell you that today on my show, I'm talking to Kelly Carlin, because some pair of comedians, I'm doing their quotes, uh, put up an hour-long special on YouTube. They fed in a bunch of George Carlin's material into an AI program and had to generate a script, and one of these guys allegedly does a Carlin impression and, and with his cadence and everything, which he was not even close on, but and posted it, um, uh, at, you know, using George Corlin's name. Ugh. And his daughter, Kelly, is is fighting it because this could open a whole new can of worms. So that's yes. exactly what you're talking about there. Yeah, that was what Kagan was presenting, you know, because this is mm-hmm. being done without Kelly Carlin, who I believe is yep. the person who is in control of uh, the entire George Carlin estate. It estate. does so yes, without her is. permission, without any yep. compensation, without any control yep. over what they do or what they make her yep. father say, 
which he never actually said. So it's a huge right. area. The, you know, the the uh, Actors Union, the Screen Actors Guild, the Writers Guild of America, yep. they both struck over the imposition of AI, which is effectively AI. stealing people's work in order to that's create right. new work. So trying yes. to, that's, that's one of the areas that Kagan brought up, Justice Kagan, saying, you know, this is the concept of future threats, um, you know, that Congress can't anticipate every potential future threat. Congress cannot and does not move fast enough to counter new threats. They don't have that expertise either. And so the Chevron deference gives experts at agencies the flexibility to do so as delegated by Congress. Now, now here, here is uh, Justice Kagan. There are going to be all kinds of places where, although there's not an explicit delegation, Congress um, has, in effect, left a gap. It has created an ambiguity. And what Congress is thinking is, do we want courts to fill that gap, or do we want an agency to fill that gap when the normal techniques of legal interpretation have run out? So that was Justice Kagan in oral arguments today, sort of summing up that uh, that question about the Chevron deference and and what it does, how it protects what Congress has mandated agencies to do and how these plaintiffs, you know, who really do want to undercut and dismantle the uh, administrative state in order to prevent agencies from reining in polluters, reining in the finance industry and predators of other kinds of sectors like, you know, consumer product safety, stuff like that. So this case that's on the surface about uh, an environmental matter, is that what that was what it was about? Yeah, it's basically about. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, That has has tentacles that reach into pretty much everything that has come before it. Yes, exactly. And so it's a it's a very um, broad reaching case with very broad uh, reaching and scary implications. Um, you know, listening to the oral arguments this morning, I could not tell for sure about whether or not uh, it looks like Justice uh, Kavanaugh and Justice Amy Coney, Coney Barrett might be sort of finding looking for some wiggle room there so they can sort of partially overturn Chevron without looking like, you know, they're maniacs uh, like Alito and Justice Thomas and Justice Roberts, who seemed ready to go, especially Justice Gorsuch, you know, who has been trying to overturn this Chevron deference his entire career. So that's where Wait, that So stands. back up one second, Desi, because yeah. Gorsuch's mother was fighting against the Chevron rule no. back in the so, Reagan thing? So, so in she- the Reagan era, uh, she, as EPA administrator, put forth a rule that would basically weaken uh, environmental air pollution regulations. So oh. then Natural Resources Defense Council sued and all the justices said, no, no, no. The agency, EPA and Gorsuch, says that, you know, this is what they think is the right thing to do. And you got to defer to that. So it has been since used by environmental groups as a tool to say, hey, guys, I know you want to not have pollution pollution regulations, but the EPA experts over here, you got to defer to them. So now Gorsuch is trying to pull back that tool that has been used for years and across many sectors in order to basically rein in corporate predators. Wow. Yeah. So it's uh, it's going to be a big thing. We'll see how they land. And I, you know, I. I don't have a whole lot of faith that they're going to land on the side of clean air and clean water, but we shall see. 
Right. Oh my goodness. Well, yes. the Supreme Court, you know, it's when you listen, <laughs> you, you, you hear all this stuff that sometimes I think I'd rather not, yes. rather not know. Yeah. But as we've learned, uh, pretending it's not there, pretending it's not happening doesn't make it go away. Witness Donald Trump. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Because there are some of us who have tried to ignore him, um, but he's still <laughs> he's there. ubiquitous. Uh, Yes, he is ubiquitous. And today, for the second day in a row, he showed up in a courthouse in New York City where E. Jean Carroll's second defamation case against him is proceeding. Yesterday, they had jury selection. For yeah. whatever reason, Trump was there. He didn't need to be. Yeah, I think he's he there to try saying, to, he tries to uh, intimidate both the jurors and E. Jean Carroll. That's my yes. opinion. Absolutely. And I've heard I heard that yesterday when they were doing the jury selection, he, um, uh, you know, he was like mugging at people and turning around, making faces as he does. Yeah. And then today. So our pal got a laugh. Today is live shooting the the trial. (laughs) And Trump is there again, doesn't have to be, even though he says they pulled me off the campaign trail for the. No, they didn't. He doesn't have to be there. (laughs) Right. But, you know, he's there. So the judge in this case is a guy named Lewis Kaplan, and he's known as like a no-nonsense lawyer. He set the rules yes, uh, uh, when it started on, on Tuesday, and apparently this is all I've been reading like overnight, how he is no-nonsense, cut to the chase, not taking anything from anybody. Mm. And you could see it. So Laffey, I don't know what she's – she's monitoring inner-city press – and a few other outlets, and she's okay. sort of aggregating it all on Mastodon. So live tooting as opposed to tweeting. <laughs> Which is what Mastodon um, is. They're toots. Right. They toot. And so <laughs> it starts, she writes with um, some some transcripts, really. So she's she's quoting Trump's uh, lawyer, Haba. Habba Habba. Uh, Habba says, my client and I wish to point out Ms. Carroll can sit in front of jurors every day, but my client has to choose between attending his mother-in-law's funeral and then the judge cuts him off and saying, I have ruled, sit down. And Habba Habba says, I don't like to be spoken to that way. Please refrain. I'm asking for an adjournment for a funeral. And the judge said, denied, sit down. Wow. Okay, good. <laughs> now, note that, yes, it may be his mother-in-law's funeral, but he has a rally planned in New Hampshire later today. Yes. So it's not like uh, Donald is there consoling malaria. I'm sorry, Melania, um, <laughs> over the loss of her mother. Right. Uh, by the way, she's been absent from every single court proceeding since they began. So there's that. Yeah. And of then, course, as you've mentioned before, Trump does not have to be there. If he no, wants to attend the funeral, he can. He can. Exactly. And so then it continues. That now, now, it's confusing because the judge is Lewis Carroll. Uh, I'm sorry, Lewis Kaplan. Right. E. Jean Carroll's attorney is Robbie Kaplan. Oh. No relation. Yeah, in case but it anyone makes it harder to keep track. Yes. So RK is how Laffey re- refers to the, the, the attorney. Um, and he says, plaintiff calls E. Jean Carroll and asks, where do you live in upstate New York in the mountains? Why are you here? And she said, Donald Trump abused, then defamed me and shattered my reputation. Uh, then the lawyer says, has, has Mr. Trump continued to lie about you? Carroll said he lied Sunday and yesterday. 
And Haba Haba says, objection, non-responsive and not an issue here. And the judge says, certainly relevant to damages overruled. Good. Now, again, this is not a case where the act is being litigated. He's already been found liable for rape in a previous trial. Yep. So this is just about damages for right. the second time, right? So then the lawyer asks, well, how was your reputation shattered? And Carol says, yesterday on Twitter, I saw, hey, lady, you're a fraud. Previously, I was a columnist. Now I'm known as a whack job. People don't write to an advice columnist that's being attacked like this. And then um, the lawyer says, in the first case, what were your claims? Carol says, assault and defamation. When was the assault? 1996. How long did the trial last? Two weeks. Who cross-examined you? Joe Tacopina. And Haba objects, and the judge sustained the objection. And I'm not quite sure why, but I guess this Tapakina guy is still on the legal team, but he's not doing the questioning here. Um, I think he might have withdrawn, but it's oh. unclear to me why that would be. You know, basically, um, as I understand it, these constant objections can also be used as a way to interrupt the flow of the uh, the, the plaintiff and the plaintiff's lawyers. Uh-huh. So she could yep. just be jumping in to try to prevent the jury from getting a straight, linear explanation of what actually happened to E. Jean Carroll. And as I understand it, if I remember correctly, E. Jean Carroll lost her columnist job after yes. Trump started attacking her. So it had directly affected her career. That's right. And for the next few questions that Laffey uh, you know, articulates here. He's asking about, you know, her experience, what her job was at different magazines, how many books she wrote. She wrote five books, including a biography of Hunter Thompson, mm. a book of essays, a memoir, um, one called Female Difficulties. And so, and he was questioning her about those things. And and again, here's one. So the, the judge says in this book, And that's the one about the female difficulties, I guess. And she says, it's about what women think. And Haba objects. Objection. Uh Vague. What women think. And the judge cuts her off. Ms. Haba, when you speak in this courtroom or any other courtroom, you'll stand up. I guess she wasn't standing. And then uh, Carol says women were very blunt in Alabama and Arkansas and Ohio. They were thrilled to talk to a journalist. And and it goes on like that. Then the, the next question is, in that book, what did you say about Mr. Trump? And Carol said that we met outside of Bergdorf's. He asked me to help buy a gift. We went to the lingerie department. And then Haba again, object, objection already determined. Okay. Yeah, that had uh, already been adjudicated, right. Right. How many pages about Mr. Trump? Nine. And then it goes on to talking about something that's not redacted. It's from the book. It's not. Then Haba wants to read something. And the judge said, I will read it. Um, Uh it, It's very contentious. Yes. Um, Yes. And so, uh, you know, her attorney again asked, have you told anyone publicly about the story about Trump? No. Did it factor in that he was president? Yes. I went ahead and did it. Did you expect him to respond? I thought he'd say it was consensual. Is that what he did? No. He said my false accusation damaged the real victims of sexual assault. That's a lie. Haba objects. The judge says on what ground? In one word. And Haba says she's not a lawyer. Kaplan, (laughs) overruled. (laughs) 
Good Lord. And then her lawyer again, have you paid dearly? And she said, just about as dearly as it is possible to pay. Yes. And then she See, tries now, to I will admit- say that she has, Carol has detailed in numerous articles and interviews how it kind of destroyed her life, too, in that, you know, she has not had a relationship with anyone since that assault. That's right. And that's been many, many years. Yes. I mean, what she said, yes. So and then not the just judge, professionally, but also personally an impact on Personally, her. hasn't been intimate with anyone in all those years. Um, and then they, they go on with some some press things and, and things that Trump said about her here. Carol says he said that numerous women had been paid to make false accusations about him and that these women did very well and Haba objects. Kaplan says overruled. Good. Carol says it was untrue. I was not paid. And then uh, her the attorney says, what about paying dearly? And she said, he said, people like me should tread carefully. Haba, objection. Judge Kaplan overruled. Ah. <laughs> attorney, what's the context of these statements by Mr. Trump? Carol, he's on his way to the helicopter questions from journalists. And then the, the attorney asked about an article that was in The Hill where Trump again said things like, I'm not his type, meaning I'm too ugly. Yeah. And Haba says, objection, speculation. And judge says, overruled, you can cross-examine. And Carol said, the president called me a liar 26 times. It ended the world I'd been living in. I'm in a new world. And and then she started telling about messages that she was getting on Facebook and horrible attacks. And he said, how often do you receive such such messages? Sometimes hundreds of times a day. Wow. What are the themes that you are a liar? You hurt victims. You are ugly. Those are the first three. And your motivations? Uh, Haba, objection. We were ordered not to discuss. All right. Then the then the lawyer uh, displayed a Facebook, Facebook message. You're nothing but a liar. Trump did nothing to you. You're only saying this to promote your book. You have to answer to the Lord for your lies. I hope it was worth it. And it goes on and on like that. Facebook chats. Uh, th- then um, allegations that she's being paid by George Soros. And it goes on and on like this. And then th- they took an adjournment at one point. Now, Trump the whole time is sitting there and glaring at her. Yeah. And apparently speaking to his attorney, but, you know, allegedly under his breath, but not, you know, how Trump, you know, you can whisper scream sort of. (laughs) And he was and he was shushed by the judge. And the judge said, look, you have a right to be in this courtroom. However, I can take that away. I can tell you I can kick you out of here. And Trump says, I wish you would. Oh, I wish he would, yeah. too, but I guess yeah. that he would then try to fundraise off of that. Listen, we're getting close to the end of this segment. So anything else you want to add to that? No, it's just it's it goes on. And now Alina, the Haba Haba lady is is putting on her case, I guess. I don't know if they're going to wrap this up today. I think not. Doesn't sound like it. No. All right. Let me tell you about what we've got coming up, because um, as you've noticed, words matter. Yes. <laughs> and Donald Trump does not choose his words carefully, but we must in terms of dealing with pushback from people. When you're talking about politics, when you're talking about anything important, the words you choose matter. So I, I got to speak with Anat Shankar Osorio a couple of weeks ago on my show for a fascinating conversation about how we must choose our words properly, especially when talking about politics. So we'll take a quick time out and come back on the other side and hear that. Sounds good. Uh, Hang on. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Bradcast. (laughs) 
Hey, it's Brad. Well, we are here in another critical presidential election year. We cover elections like no other outlet in the nation. This election year will be a big one like none other. It could even be the last one, depending on how it goes. Seriously. Please help the Bradcast continue in this critical election year. Support our work right now with a generous donation via bradblog.com slash donate. Help keep the Bradcast and bradblog.com free for all. We couldn't do any of this without you. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate right now. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, holding down the fort today with Desi Doyen as Brad Friedman battles the symptoms from his rebound case of COVID. Mm, Feel better, Brad. Well, today I'm going to share with you an interview I did a couple of weeks ago. It's an important reminder that words matter. We must pay close attention to what words we use when posting on social media or speaking about the upcoming elections. So, Anat Shankar Osorio is, in her words, a researcher, message maker, and campaign advisor. She's also the author of the book, Don't Buy It, The Trouble with Talking Nonsense About the Economy, that was released back in 2012. These days, Anat hosts the Words to Win By podcast at wordstowinby-pod.com, where episode one of season three just dropped. Now, it's been a while since we had last spoke, but I was disheartened by some statements from people who, well, should know better. An old friend who doesn't follow politics like we do posted on Facebook something to the effect of, we're going to be stuck with Donald Trump because Joe Biden is running again and refuses to step down. What? I explained to her that she's doing Trump's bidding here, echoing right-wing rhetoric and obsessing on the Joe Biden is old nonsense without acknowledging that Trump is only three years younger and in much worse shape mentally and physically than Joe Biden, and also that the polls are irrelevant 10 months out from an election. Then I got an email from David Hogg. Remember him? He's one of the survivors of the Parkland school shooting who formed March for Our Lives. He's usually pretty good at this stuff, but this time he tweeted, there's no way to victory with Joe Biden as the nominee. Excuse me? What? So I figured it was time to call in an expert on the words we use. So I invited a knot back on the show. We started with a topic of great frustration for me, the horse race treatment by the corporate news industry of these elections and their reliance on polls, which we've learned in recent years are mostly meaningless. So my first question for Anat Shanker Osario. Tell us about polls. Yeah, polls, that's an easy one. So 
The thing about horse race polls, well, first, I want to say many things about the polls. Yes. First of all, many of them are drawing a national sample. And it would be lovely to live in a country in which we had a popular vote and a national sample had any meaning at all. But of course, we live in this country. And so the first thing, if you know anything about politics, is that how people are going to vote where I live in California is meaningless, where lots and lots of other people live in New York and even in Florida, Texas, none of those states are battleground states. And so asking questions of the national electorate, irrelevant. First thing you need to know, if it's a national poll, why are you looking at it? Yes. Second thing you need to know, if it is a battleground states poll, oftentimes the margin between the two candidates is larger than the margin of error. And here I really, really want to hold up a phrase that we all need to burn in our brain from my frequent collaborator and friend, Mike Podhorzer. If it's in the margin of error, it's in the margin of effort. Mm. And we need okay. to replace our understanding of MOE for the pollsters out there or the polling curious and understand that that means it's in the margin of effort. When people are taking a survey, when they are answering online or on the telephone or whatever modality is used, and they are asked the question, for whom would you vote? You have to understand that people do not know what they want for dinner tomorrow, <laughs> let alone what they are going to want come the beginning of November. We are way, way, way too far away because the thing that makes the difference in elections in these battleground states, as we saw in 2018, as we saw in 2016, as we saw in 20, as we saw in 22, as we saw in all of the special odd year elections in between, really is turnout. It mm. comes down to whether or not people turn out. Let's just be honest with ourselves. There isn't a human being left, and if there is, they are a singular alien that's scratching their head and going, Trump versus Biden. I don't know. <laughs> I've never thought about that matchup before. Right. I haven't made up my mind. I'm still thinking about it. Basically, outside of, you know, seven swing voters that are left, at least at the top of the ticket, it's different farther down. People have more room to play back and forth if we're talking about a school board race, for example. But at the top of the ticket, it isn't just that people's calcified identity preferences are tied to whichever team they consider themselves to be. They've literally already made this choice before. This matchup has already happened, mm -hmm. which, by the way, as a side pet theory, I think part of the malaise around this entire election is just the fact that we've been conditioned to think about politics as being like reality television and theater. <laughs> and this is just a really boring election. Like we've already seen this episode. They already did this episode. Why do we have to watch this episode again? This is a rematch from 2020 and that's boring. And we don't really like that. I digress back to polls. When people are asked, what do you think you're going to do? They are registering how they feel at the moment of the survey and how they feel, yeah, is despondent and annoyed and frustrated and whatever malaise. And they are registering a displeasure with the present moment. What we find is that 
when, for example, we ask them, you wake up the morning, I want you to imagine that you wake up the morning of November 6th, 2024, and you open up your whatever and you read that Trump is president. How do you feel about that? (laughs) They're like horrified, disgusted, this and that. And so the point of this story is that answering a survey question, people respond differently to answering a survey question than they do to actually taking a an electoral action. And as I like to tell people over and over, I would rather win elections than polls. Yes. Yes. And if you look at that record, if you look at the record of winning elections and not polls, and you begin to count from 2018 when there was that blue wave and everything in between, including, like I said, the off-year special elections, I want to be a Democrat based on those odds. And so that's what I have to say about polling. Get yourself off the polar coaster, whatever it is you need to do to understand that that those aren't a meaningful set of questions right now. People cannot predict what they are going to do that far ahead. Right. It's 11 months away, which in politics is an eternity, number one. Number two, um, the, the, the polls have been wrong for the last... 10 years. I'm not saying they've always been wrong, but you know, the media, you, you mentioned, you used a term, you said these horse race polls. This is what the media has reduced our elections to not a discussion about the issues or where the candidates stand on each issue, but the horse race. And that's all they seem to care about. And in so doing, and, and you already brought this up in your introduction, the the issue with the polls is actually that social proof is real. So what I mean by social proof is I sometimes call it the middle school theory of messaging. This is where people do the thing they think people like them do. And it's very difficult to underscore just how potent social proof is. And so what this means is that if you could imagine, if you could remember all the way back to 2016, if you're an apolitical person, and for folks who are listening to this, it's important to recognize that while we're accustomed to seeing the major distinction in politics be between right-wing and left-wing people, the actually much more significant distinction is between apolitical people, which is the majority of the populace, and the total outlier freako weirdos, which is us. (laughs) Being deeply attendant to and engaged in politics is atypical. Mm -hmm. That is not a sort of a standard set of behavior. Most people are sort of barely coming into consciousness that this is even an election year. They will begin to tune in and tap into that, you know, end of summer, beginning of fall at best. And right now, this has nothing to do with their life, nothing to do with their reality. They are not thinking about it. And I know that's very hard for us to understand, but that's what's true. And so for an apolitical person, if you are wandering around, you get flown into northern Wisconsin or, you know, rural Pennsylvania or the middle of Michigan, and you're scratching your head and you're like, I wonder what people like me think. And you see a sea of red MAGA hats and you see at that point, no blue stronger together hats, which people probably don't even remember was Hillary Clinton's slogan. (laughs) And you're thinking, what do people like me think? 
Well, I guess this is what a me kind of a person thinks. And it is that social proof, that essence, that the socially sanctioned position for whatever my identity group is, which could be age, it could be race, it could be the church you attend. I guess that's what a my kind of a person does. And so when we have this constant drumbeat of reporting that says, in essence, people don't like Joe Biden, it actually does increase the number of people who don't like Joe Biden, because, again, it creates the condition that that is sort of the default thinking pattern, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's like the echo chamber and you keep saying something enough times and people take it, believe it's fact. I had a perfect um Uh, This is an aside, but worked on a big morning show, big radio morning show years ago uh, in Los Angeles. And I said something about, well, the Dodgers, you know, we could get Daryl Strawberry on because, you know, they listen to us in the locker room every morning. And one of the guys said to me, they do. Is that is that true? And I said, I just said it on the radio. It's got to be true. So that's how these and now it's social media. So it's even worse. And. Yeah, again, a friend of mine who I know from my music days posted this thing. It's like, oh, Joe Biden won't uh, leave the race, so we're going to lose and be stuck with Donald Trump. It's like, where do you get this? Do you realize the damage you're doing? Because the words we use are not matter, right? And this is what you're all about. This is what you write about. Your book that you published a dozen or so years ago, uh, Don't Buy It, <laughs> which was... I don't know if that was the best title, but but it was about don't just take the, what they're saying for, and, and yet I, it seems that social media has just amplified these horrible messages, and people don't necessarily know where they're coming from, but they're quick to repeat them. Yeah, I guess what I would say about that is. First of all, we need to remember, and I willfully refuse to call it anything else, that Twitter is not real life, (laughs) and it is not a place where these apolitical people that I referenced earlier live. That is not their chosen social media. But they're on Facebook. They are on Facebook. If they're older, they're on Facebook. Yes. If they're younger, they're on TikTok. If they're somewhere in between, they're probably on Instagram, Instagram. but they're definitely not on Twitter. Right. So it's important to remember that kind of the conversation that happens on Twitter and increasingly less and less and less and less, right, because people are fleeing, understandably so, is really a hyper partisan hyper political person talking to other hyper partisan hyper political people it's not where people who you know whose core like interest lies in baseball or core interest lies in you know whatever crocheting you name it music is hanging out that's just not Mm -hmm. kind of who's on there so you know i give a little bit more grace to what people are venting on twitter simply because it's it's an echo chamber of people who are already absolutely going to vote right. and who are going to vote for the person for whom they're going to vote. Like their their preferences are calcified and their participation is very, very active. Beyond that, I think, you know, there is this like fear that is very, very understandable and this desire for Joe Biden to step down, as you expressed from your music friend, which I totally understand. And the fact of the matter, and, you know, it's a funny thing, like, people have this assumption that the calculus would be different for an unnamed person, Mm -hmm. that somehow, you know, everything would just be magically delicious if, you know, 
I don't know, Michelle Obama gets into the race or whoever we imagine to be our kind of like... John Stewart. Yeah, John Stewart, Oprah, you know, Gretchen Whitmer to be a little bit more realistic Mm -hmm. and speak Mm -hmm. about like an actual accomplished person in politics. I mean, Michelle Obama is also an accomplished person in politics, but she has made it clear that like she would rather, you know, scratch out her own eyeballs (laughs) and like she's not returning to the White House. And at least that is what she has always said. So... The idea that, you know, somehow there's this other vessel, and if we simply had another vessel, we would be in a completely different situation. I wish that were the case, but that belies a fundamental misunderstanding of modern politics. Modern politics is very, very, very tribal. Mm -hmm. People vote Team Blue because they are Team Blue. People vote Team Red because they are Team Red. That is most partisans, but the largest voting block of Americans, and this cannot be stated enough, are voter eligible non-voters. Yeah. That is more than Republicans and more than Democrats. So really the name of the game is, are we going to increase turnout? And so I think these naysayers would say, yes, enough, that is what I'm concerned about. And we cannot get the turnout that we need if we don't have a younger, more exciting, more dynamic figure. And maybe that's true. Maybe this perfect person that you like are going to manifest or is going to come to be would do that. But you actually have absolutely no evidence. You, we, we can't run the counterfactual. And in fact... Anytime a survey asks about a generic non-entity, so for example, would you vote third person without naming someone? You get way, way, way more positive response than as soon as you put a name in. In other words, people always want to vote for no one, (laughs) for an unnamed, more than they want to vote for an actual human being. What is the point of this entire diatribe? The point of the entire diatribe is that the number one correlate to voting behavior is actually not talking about candidates. It's not talking about issues, again, so hard for political people to understand. Voting is a habitual action Mm. that is much more like flossing or daily exercise Mm. or healthy eating than it is a reasoned, rational choice. People who vote, vote. People who don't vote, don't vote. And so what that means is outside of really astonishing elections. So, for example, when Barack Obama came into power in 2008, there was a huge surge of African-Americans voting. Right. He was a singular figure that was able to create that dynamic for reasons I think are pretty darn obvious that no other figure, even another African-American running, are going to be able to recreate because he was the first. Mm -hmm. He's also an extraordinary orator and everything else that we know, right, that I don't need to repeat. But the way that we increase voting behavior, and I'm going to give a very, very specific set of examples, is by making voting the sort of dominant thing that your category of people do, like waiting in line for the new iPhone. Why is everyone waiting in that line? I don't know. I guess it's because everyone is waiting in that line. Right. Right. 
And there's no kind of ideological reason behind it. There's no kind of deeper reason behind it. And and I want to bookmark because I'm going to come back to it and say there are real fundamental things that have upset people, and rightly so, I would say, about the present administration. And there is a difference between habitual non-voters and trying to break that habit, which is much more like getting a person to start exercising for the first time, than people who have previously been voters and are now saying, I'm not going to, like, I'm going to break this habit. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's much more ideological. But as far as habituation... What we have seen over time, and and I'm going to draw upon, if you'll allow it, an example from Brazil. Okay. Because even though it's another country, I know other country. There's other people in other parts of the world. Oh, my God. In 2022, they had an extraordinarily critical election between the right-wing authoritarian, you know, Amazon-destroying, anti-Indigenous, anti-LGBT, Christian nationalist, don't don't know if any of this sounds familiar, uh, Bolsonaro, who was in power, who had this rabid right-wing base, who engaged in quote-unquote culture wars, all of the things that, you know, botched the COVID response, And they had another former ex-president running, Lula. Right. And young people were like, screw both of these old guys, right? There you go. So here's the situation. You have two old former ex-presidents running. Does that sound familiar? Young people are like a plague on both your houses. Yep. And there was a campaign that increased youth turnout by 47%. I did not make up that number is the actual number. And the core set of messages that they utilized, and and I was extraordinarily lucky to get to work on this campaign, was if you don't decide, they'll decide for you. Uh What they did was they took people's desire for defiance, which is absolutely understandable given the present day situation and decisions with which I also very vehemently disagree, to be clear, very vehemently disagree with what is going on right now in terms of U.S. support for Netanyahu. And I say this as an Israeli, just my other life also. I think anything that helps prop up and support Netanyahu is fundamentally bad for everyone, not just in that region, but in the world. It's not helpful to hand a blank check to a criminal. That's a bad idea. Um, And he is a criminal. Putting aside what's going on now, whatever you feel about... uh, Oh, he's a criminal. I mean, he would be in prison if if he were not elected. There's so many parallels between him and Trump, and people need to see that. He is is Trump. He is Trump who sentences parse. He is a Trump who can, you know, speak English in an effective manner and, you know, ironic given it's not his first language, unlike Trump. But so, so I am not saying there are not real issues. There are absolutely real issues and there are clear ideological reasons for being extraordinarily unhappy and upset in this moment. Like that is absolutely true. And I think that the way that we deal with that is that, it's going to be hard 
to sell Biden. It's going to be hard to sell. You should vote for Biden Harris. But I think that the thing that we can sell and that we sold, I would argue, in 2018, we sold it even with Biden on the ticket in 2020. We definitely sold it in 2022 is this idea of protecting our freedoms. Our core message in 22 in the battleground states that we won, because in 15 states, where Democrats won, it's important to note that turnout was equal to 2018 historic levels, which makes it more historic because it was an incumbent year. Right, right, the midterm. In 35 states, turnout was down among the Democratic base as anyone would have predicted in a midterm election, and Democrats did not win. So what caused that higher turnout and therefore the ability to win in those 15 states? Those were places where a Maggie, uh, a marquee, pardon, somewhere near the top of the ticket, a marquee MAGA Republican was on the ballot, and we were successfully able to make the election a referendum on, are we going to have freedom? Are we going to have fascism? Yeah. And people turned out, not necessarily because there was a name on the ballot that they were super jazzed about, but rather to say, not on my watch. I will stand for myself. I will stand for my daughters. I will stand for the future. And I will stand to make this a country where liberty and justice is for all. And so what I say to people who are like, well, what do we do? You know, I don't like either of these choices. I don't feel good about either of these things. Our electoral system is obviously fundamentally broken. It's been broken since it was made. It was made to be broken. Mm -hmm. It was made to entrench power in a few white rural hands. That's That's how they set it up. That's the electoral college there for you. And the Senate. And the Senate. Absolutely. And the Senate. Layer onto that gerrymandering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the way that I think about it is that Our electoral system is a broken down toaster that has precisely two slots in it. Uh There's no way to get a nutritious breakfast out of a toaster. You can't have protein. (laughs) You can't have vitamins. You can't even have a particularly flavorful meal. But your choices are you could have a, you know, slightly crusty, crisp, burnt piece of toast that will at least provide you some calories. Mm -hmm. And those calories will allow you to sustain and engage in the actual fight we need to have, which probably involves having a general strike, because honestly, I believe the only way we'd get real change in this country is withholding our labor. And so you have that toast instead of the carcinogenic lump of like arsenic and other (laughs) kinds of poison, because that's the other slot of the toaster. But you understand that the toaster is not the means to the nutritious breakfast, i.e. the actual country that we want to have. And so I think that what we sell, and this is, again, what we've seen in other countries and what we've seen in our own recent elections of the past, is that you sell this idea that the protagonist-antagonist relationship is not Democrats and Republicans. It's MAGA Republicans who want to take away your freedoms, rule over, not represent us, control you, decide your future for you, mm-hmm. and voters 
who stand with and for each other and will do all that we can to protect our freedoms. That is the rhetorical matchup. And yes, that requires checking a blue box. It does. Mm -hmm. But that's what we've seen in testing works in terms of messaging. Uh, Anat Shankar Osorio is our guest. And oh, my God, Anat, I, I, I can't believe I let 10 years go by <laughs> since we've spoken because you've given us so much already. And I, I could keep going because I've got a million more questions for you. So I hope you will come back. Um, we're just <clears throat> getting close to the end of the hour. I know you've got things and uh, we've got a clock. So Anat, listen to her podcast. It's at Words to Win By dash pod.com i'll put it's up on the uh chiron i'll put it up on the blog where i post the show today um and your your main business website is asocommunications.com you work with candidates you help them get their messaging straight because the words we use matter um and and the way you position things is important and one of the things i said earlier and you said yes if you one little thing to take away is Talk about what you want, not what you don't want. And I guess that has to come, that comes with, you know, um, manifesting what you want. The, the power of suggestion or visualization is if you think about things you don't want, you're going to get what you don't want. You have to put yeah. out what you want. I, I often tell people, I think this is a helpful anecdote maybe to leave off with. If you're at a swimming pool, and kids are running, a decent lifeguard is going to yell walk. Because if you yell don't run at a kid, they're going to run, either out of defiance or because you just yelled run at them, and they'll instinctively be like, run? Okay. (laughs) We need to stop telling people what we don't want them to do and start telling people what we do want them to do. Tony K. Bambara, the writer, said, the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. And I would argue that the role of the activist is the very same. We spend so much time being a don't and a no and a stop and a can't, understandably because so many horrible things are going on. But in reality, if you want people to come to your cause, you need to be attractive. And that means saying, This is the world that we can have. The future is made out of the decisions that we take together. We decide what's possible. That is Anat Shanker Osorio. It was uh, from my show just a week or so ago, and I thought it was really important knowing what we're all dealing with right now. Yeah, really, really, really important. Okay, we got to get out. Thank you so much, Nicole. Um, Where can people find you? NicoleSandler.com. Fantastic. And uh, you can reach us here at the Bradcast. Email us if you like. We are Bradcast at Bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, we are the Brad Blog. We will see you there. And I don't know, Nicole, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Maybe Brad will be yes. back. Maybe it'll be us again. <laughs> Who knows? So. But we'll cross Either our fingers. Way. Yes. We're good. Thank you. We'll thank you. It. Thank Feel you. Better, thank Brad. you. Yes, we'll do. Okay. Until then, everybody, please stay safe. Safe and good luck, world. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported. Thanks to listeners like you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate.